This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, January the 9th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the RCMP is considering the creation of a museum in Saskatchewan. Michelle McQuig walks you through that news story. Sony has introduced an adaptive gaming kit at this year's CES. Steven Scott of Double Tap TV will fill you in on those details. And Denis Boudreau takes you into the digital space, into the digital world of clunky but functional mobile websites, or what I'm coining, clunctional. Talking a little bit of clunctionality. Before we get to the top news story of the day, you may have noticed that we were not here for a month. Where were we? No, not suspended. Working out the kinks in our new control room and new studio. So, for the sake of our viewers who are blind or low vision, allow me to give you a brief description of our brand new studio. I'm still sitting at a desk. Thank goodness they're not making me stand. But it's a brand new desk. It's a V-shape with a blue top. It's got wood and metal paneling on the front. It's very comfortable and very nice. My background also has a bit of wood and metal paneling behind me, as well as some green with some textured white on the wall. The other side of the room is blue. You'll see that on a wide shot. A lot of hard work went into making the studio come together and this control room coming together. I want to paraphrase the TV show How I Met Your Mother, where Barney Stinson famously said, newer is always better. So Ted invites Wendy the waitress over and says, Wendy, what is your oldest scotch? And she says, we have a beautiful 30-year-old McCallum available for you. Wendy, what is your newest scotch? Well, that would be the one-year-old grape scotch. Now, is newer always better? Oftentimes, the answer is yes, but we do beg your forgiveness today as we work through a couple of kinks in this new studio with this new setup. But newer is indeed better, and thank you to all the people who put in a ton of work to make this happen. Let's get to the top story of the day, and much like when we said goodbye to you in December, it's the economy. The Three Amigos Summit takes place in Mexico City this week. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, U.S. President Joe Biden, and Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador will meet with each other and other high-ranking political and business leaders. The chief executive of the Canadian-American Business Council feels the prime minister may have trouble making Canada a priority during the meetings. Lori Paris explains. Scotty Greenwood says, quote, there isn't an automatic reason that Canada is front burner the way there is with Mexico. He points out the worsening migration crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border will be the focus for Biden and Mexican President Andreas Manuel López Obrador. Canada does have a vested interest in many of the issues likely to dominate the summit, which include illegal migration from Latin America, as well as stopping the flow of deadly fentanyl. Trudeau and Biden will hold their own bilateral meeting Tuesday before the start of the summit's formal agenda. Lori Paris, the Canadian Press. In other diplomatic news, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida 
Fumio Koshida will visit Ottawa next week. Energy supply is expected to be a major topic of discussion. Business Council of Canada Vice President Trevor Kennedy reflects on Canada's position to be a global energy supplier. Japan's in a position right now where, you know, being a G7 country, not having terribly good relations with Russia either, where they're really stuck. Uh, they're stuck in a situation where they're sourcing their LNG from Russia and they don't have another, another option. Canada is leading the group of seven this year. One of their goals is to form stronger economic ties amongst those seven countries. While you're hearing about the economy, let's go back in time to Friday when both Canada and the U.S. announced their December job figures. Canada added about 100,000 jobs. That brought the unemployment rate down to 5%. American employers added more than 200,000 jobs in December, and their unemployment rate ticked down to 3.5%. BMO chief economist Douglas Porter says job growth continues to outpace forecasts. The unemployment rate is, is still close to uh, the, the lowest level we've seen in 50 years, and wages are still rising at, uh, at, at better than 5% in, in the past year. And, and both those figures are, are, quite, uh, are cons quite consistent with, uh, with a very healthy, robust uh, job market. Porter reflects further on just how significant December's job numbers may be. You always have to be a little bit careful about... Uh, reading too much into, into any single Canadian employment report, but this is the second time in three months that uh, the economy has cranked out 100,000 new jobs, which is a big number historically. Year over year, Canadian wages grew 5.1%. Let's talk about food security. A United Nations report says global food prices hit a record high in 2022. Norman Hall crunches the numbers. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization says global prices for food commodities like grain and vegetable oils were the highest on record last year, even after falling for nine months in a row. Russia's war in Ukraine, drought and other factors drove up inflation and worsened hunger worldwide. The FAO Food Price Index, which tracks monthly changes in the international prices of commonly traded food commodities, dipped by 1.9% in December, from a month earlier, but for the whole year it averaged 143.7 points, more than 14% above the 2021 average, which also saw large increases. I Norman Hall. That's the economy, which you know dominated so many headlines throughout the tail end of last year. Well, what about healthcare? There's no shortage of healthcare stories either. British Columbia is reactivating 20 emergency operation centers to deal with increasing hospitalization numbers. Health Minister Adrian Dix points to the ongoing strain facing the health system. This has been a grind and a grinder for healthcare workers. We're, we're entering into year three of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic period, or well into it. We'll be entering into year four of the pandemic in March, and uh, it has been unrelenting. More than 10,000 people are currently in BC hospitals. Around 1,000 of those people have been hospitalized for the flu, RSV, or COVID. And more than 600 people have been hospitalized since January the 1st. Now, it's not just Canada that is dealing with hospital strain and some contract and economic negotiation issues. Following failed negotiations, thousands of nurses at two New York City hospitals are now on strike. Reporter Janice Yu is on the picket line outside Mount Sinai Hospital on Manhattan's Upper East Side. 
They just did a countdown to 6 o'clock, which is, of course, the official start of the strike. Um, the nurse I talked to, I had some uh, time to talk to some of the nurses, and they tell me they are ready to strike for as long as they need to. And she says it's been an emotional time as she and others prepared for days to walk away from a job they love. The New York State Nurses Association says it was forced into the drastic step because of chronic understaffing. Another related story in the U.S., drugstore chains across the United States are having staffing issues. Julie Walker has that story. Temporary pharmacy closures, lunch hours, shutdowns, and shortened hours are how drugstore chains are dealing with staffing issues. More than a year ago, a rush of vaccines, virus tests, and a busy flu season overwhelmed many drugstores. Some are offering signing bonuses and raising pay. One expert says there isn't a pharmacist shortage. Instead, not enough who want to work in high-stress environments. Walgreens is opening processing centers to help fill some of the routine prescriptions. CVS is trying to spread data entry and prescription verification work to different locations to ease the load at busy stores. I'm Julie Walker. And then over the Atlantic, Britain's prime minister is holding a crisis meeting over their struggling health system. Charles de Ledesma has that story. Rishi Sunak is meeting ministers, medics and health managers for talks aimed at fixing a health care crisis that's seen thousands of patients stranded outside overflowing hospitals, while the government says it's bringing together the best minds from the health and care sectors. The opposition Labour Party is dismissing the gathering as a talking shop. Experts warning there are no quick fixes for long-brewing problems in the state-funded National Health Service. Thousands of hospital beds are occupied by people who are fit to be discharged but have nowhere to go because of a dearth of places for long-term care. Charles Diladesma, London. That's your look at the news. Here are the daily polls. Going way back to December the 9th, you were asked at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, when are you most productive? Well, 55% of you said the morning, 0% of you said the midday, 22% of you said the evening, and 22% of you said at night. Had some responses here on Twitter from Terry at Accessible Media. He says, while sleeping, Terry, you're always so cheeky. Over on Facebook, at Accessible Media Inc. Leona writes in evening. The morning and midday are spent mulling, mental drafting, revising and discussing. Evening is when it all comes together and becomes the finished idea. And Kendall writes in living in BC, I need to be up and alert by 6 a.m. so I can hear Dave ask to hear the horns and go. So I am a morning person. Unless it's producing good vibes, then it's evening before bed. I hope the horns don't change a month from now. They did not. Schrodinger would have something to say about this with the laughing emoji. Today's Daily Poll, this is a thread you will hear pulled at a couple of times throughout the show, but I'm asking you, at Accessible Media, on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc., on Facebook, what do you do to make your life easier when you travel? Book direct flights, only carry on bags, arrive early, or maybe you're taking the approach of, I don't travel. Alex, I'm very much becoming someone who is only carrying on bags for the sake of uh, leaving that chaos out of my life when I can. But Alex Smythe, what about you? What are you doing to make your life easier when you travel? Yeah, I haven't gotten to that point yet, Dave, where I want to only deal with carry-on bags because I like to go on long trips and you can't pack everything into a carry-on bag. Mm. For me, it's all about booking the direct flights when you can. I think that is a big de-stressor for me, especially if you have to, you know, 
like transfer over in a different country? Because then there's the whole question of, okay, do you have to go through immigration? Do you got to pick up your bags after a transfer and then re-drop them off mm. at a different teller? Like that is a big stressor for me. So it's always about trying to get those direct flights. And if I can't get a direct flight, I'm going to look at trying to get one that's going to transfer, let's say, in Canada, or it's going to um, be with the same airline. So there are less steps that I would have to take in order to get to my destination and make sure my bag gets to my destination. But that said, I'm always arriving early regardless. Like, that is something that is just ingrained in me from yeah. a very early age. I don't <laughs> want to stress out about something I can control. I can control how early I get to the airport. So typically, I'm planning to be there three hours at least beforehand, you know, get checked in, especially over the past year when I've had to travel. It's like, look, the, the airports are going to be crazy. Uh, give yourself extra time, less stress, less worry, less hassle. No, that said, when I have traveled and taken uh, uh, flights, they haven't really been that bad, which is um, surprising to me, considering all the stories that I did hear coming out of the airports, especially around the summertime. And I, I had to go through Pearson during the summertime. And it was fine. It took me like 20 minutes to get from the doors of Pearson to my gate. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. You know, I had built in a whole hour to try to get through security and checking in and, and it wasn't a problem. So the, the, ter the terminal, the, the, the terminal matters though too. Terminal one at Pearson is perpetually a nightmare, whereas terminal three is typically quite good. So it, it, you have to check your terminal as well before you're doing these yep. things. Alex, you mentioned the notion of direct flights. I will say that yes, if you are going beyond internationally, like say beyond the US, if you can transferring in Canada, say in Vancouver or Montreal, as opposed to somewhere else is quite nice. But if you're flying to good old Uncle Sam, if you're flying to the US, US and A, there really is something to being able to cross at a smaller Canadian airport. One of the most beautiful things about living in Ottawa is that international airport only flew to a couple American cities, but if you were flying somewhere in the US, it was worth your time and money to transfer, to, to take the uh, American crossing in Ottawa at that airport and then transfer in Chicago or Washington or New York, even though those airports might be a little bit busier because you got rid of the border crossing on the front end in Ottawa. It was amazing. Absolutely, and, and another option, especially for like myself and, and where I'm staying, I know quite a few people, if they need to fly through the States, they'll just drive down to Buffalo because it's a very close uh, border crossing. For us, it's, it's about the same time to uh, drive to Pearson and find parking and everything. You can cross the border down to Buffalo and catch a flight out of the small mm -hmm. Buffalo airport. Now, obviously, for yourself and myself, it's a lot harder. We don't drive. <laughs> we don't but, drive. <laughs> you know, if we're going with someone who does, that's, that can also be an option depending where you are, too. Alex, thank you for this. This topic will be revisited a couple times here in the first hour of the show as some of the ramifications of travel troubles over the holidays continue to impact Canadian travelers. You can vote on the poll in the meantime at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Don't be afraid to get involved in the comments section or reply to that tweet as well. Let's go back to Alex, who has the national weather updates. your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, where it's a mix of sun and clouds, becoming cloudy near noon with a few flurries, wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour, a high of minus one, and feeling like minus 14 with the wind chill. There's also a winter storm warning in effect as storms are expected to pick up tomorrow. 
Over to Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's a mix of sun and clouds with clouds rolling in as the day goes on. There's a chance of showers later today as three is the high and a wind chill of minus nine. Over to Montreal, Quebec, it's cloudy with light snow in the afternoon, a high of minus one and a wind chill of minus nine. To Ottawa, Ontario, it is cloudy with some snow in the afternoon. The high is minus one, wind chill makes it feel like minus 12. Over here in Toronto, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy with a high of three degrees and a wind chill of minus seven. To Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow today. The high is minus four and the wind chill is minus nine. To Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's mainly cloudy, becoming cloudier as the day goes on. High is minus six, but there is a wind chill that makes it feel like minus 17. Over to Saskatchewan, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. It's a mix of sun and clouds and more clouds are rolling in as the day goes on. The high there, minus 11, but again, it's that wind chill, minus 19, so it's gonna feel colder when you're out and about. To Calgary, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds. It's clearing up as the day goes on. The high is minus three and feeling like minus seven with that wind chill. Edmonton, Alberta, my old stopping ground, it's uh, cloudy with a chance of snow, and then it'll become a mix of sun and clouds later. The high, minus three, and feeling like minus 12, something that certainly is unusual in January in Edmonton. To Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, it's cloudy with a chance of snow flurries. Minus 10 is the high, and the wind chill there, it makes it feel like minus 18. Over to BC, we'll start in Vancouver, it's clouds rolling in as the day goes on, and there are a few showers starting late in the morning, and the high is eight degrees. Finally, to Victoria, BC, it's mainly cloudy with showers in the morning. Then there's a possibility of showers later on in the day as well. There's wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour, and the high is seven degrees. That's our AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Canadians, coming up next, Canadians are changing how they travel amidst troubles at airports and train stations. Michelle McQuig will explore that news story. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Rallies were held across Canada yesterday to mark the three-year anniversary of Iran's military shooting down a Ukrainian airline's jet. 176 people, including 55 Canadians and 30 permanent residents, died. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press, and Michelle can offer some sense of the ceremonies that took place. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Hello, Dave. Welcome back. Yes, welcome back to you too. Nice to be back. And it's too bad that we're starting on such a somber story. But Michelle, what was the big takeaway from the ceremonies across the country yesterday? The big takeaway, honestly, was that this wasn't just an anniversary. This was a, a ramping up and an ongoing call for justice and accountability from the Iranian regime. This is something that's been emerging in, in, in recent years and has really been gaining steam, especially over the past year, as uh, massive, massive protests that I know we've discussed on the show before mm. have rocked Iran, especially um, after the death of Masa Amini. But the victims of the families, or excuse me, the families of the victims who died on PS752, which was the name of this flight, 
um, have become increasingly vocal and active as an advocacy group that are calling for harder sanctions against Iran politically. Uh, they would like to see the IRGC, the, the governing uh body over there declared as a terrorist organization, uh, they would just basically like to see a, a much stronger repercussions for what they see as a very deliberate act that lost them all their family members. Yeah, there was certainly an emotion in the air yesterday, but those geopolitics, oh but, but those geopolitics brambled underneath it as well. Who were some of the notable speakers or voices at the commemorations? Uh, you talk about the politically charged atmosphere, and that absolutely was the case. And it was interesting because there was actually fairly broad representation from across the political spectrum. So not only was the prime minister there, and he delivered some remarks that really sounded very uh, in agreement with, with the families. And mm. so they're saying that you lost your family members because of the Iranian regime, etc., uh, so not only was he there with a ton of very senior cabinet ministers, like Melanie Jolie was there, Omar Galbraith from, from Transport was there, mm. uh, but you also had members of the Conservative Caucus, including Pierre Poilievre, who also gave a speech, which is really kind of unusual to have members of both uh, sides, like both the government and the opposition, delivering remarks at a such, uh, the ceremony like this one. So, yeah, it was interesting. And, and fortunately, in light of the, the event itself, um, Things didn't get as political as you might expect in that, you know, Trudeau and Poilievre weren't debating or, or mm -hmm, coming mm -hmm. at things from opposite angles. Everyone sort of uh, maintained the tone of the event in mind and, and were uh, you know, issuing very supportive kind of messages. But it was very politically charged. There's no question the reporter who was in the room, uh, my colleague Tyler Griffin, was saying that there was very high energy, more than you would expect, A, for an event like this, and B, for one that went on for about three hours. It was yeah. quite long. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it, it's impossible to separate the geopolitics, but as you, as you say, there was certainly an alignment that existed there uh, amongst the people who were speaking. Michelle, let's pivot over to something a little bit different here. This one wasn't on my radar at all until I saw one of your colleagues' stories about it. The RCMP is considering building a museum in Saskatchewan. What's the background on this one? Yeah, you know what? I wasn't aware of this one either. So, excuse me, uh, kudos to my colleague Stephanie Taylor for pulling this one together and combing through hundreds of pages of FOI documents <laughs> to get the full story. Yeah, no, it was... Well done, Stephanie. Right? Yeah, I, I don't envy her that one. <laughs> but, um, no, she, she did a really nice job with this. So what's basically what's happening is that the RCMP has a heritage center that's on the grounds of its training facility in Regina. It's currently operated by a charity, but it is trying to get national museum status, which is quite a process. I didn't even realize this. Um, if you have national museum status, I can see why they want to do it. The government covers all your operating costs. You no longer have to be supported by a charity. There's all kinds of different perks that come with that. Um, but this has been a process that's been ongoing for at least three years. It obviously got stalled by COVID, like everything else did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the big stumbling block, really, especially at first, was that they were being asked to do a lot more consultation by the Heritage Department in order to get that kind of funding. Which also, by the way, if, you, if you're going to have a facility go as a national museum, apparently the Museums Act needs to be amended to make this happen. So it really is pretty complex. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I know. It, it's, it's, it's a whole thing. Um, so... Um, so initially, they were asked to do some consultations. They, they were hearing that there was not enough consultation done with the members of the LGBTQ community or Indigenous voices, which, of course, is a very uh, thorny issue now. Uh, the, the relationship between the Indigenous peoples and the RCMP is, is a very fraught and complex one. Um, some leadership changes have been taking place on, on all fronts. There's new staff in the minister's office. There's new staff on the museum board and, and uh, excuse me, the Heritage Centre board. It's not yet a museum. Um, 
a new consultation has taken place involving the likes of Marie Sinclair and then some other big names. Phil Fontaine was involved. Apparently, it is a much more robust uh, consultation process. Excuse me. Mm. Um, but there is a lot that still needs to be done in terms of the Heritage Department's movement. Uh, they would really like to get this museum up and running this year. And the peg for that would be that this is the 150th anniversary of the formation oh, wow, of the RCMP, wow. right? So you could definitely see why they would want to do that. Um, that's still what they're hoping for is by the end of this year that they can get that off the ground, but that's far from assured at this point. Michelle, you mentioned some of the fraught relationships that exist, whether contemporarily or historically, between different mm -hmm. communities in the RCMP. This story is almost that perfect example of you can perhaps see the purpose of a museum like this, but to gauge the appetite would be very difficult because certainly the RCMP has played a massive role in the history of Canada, but the tone of the museum or the nature of the museum has to represent some of the problematic elements that exist too. And maybe that kind of introspection at a heritage center may not exist, but the RCMP definitely has a public relations or, or a commitment to being engaged with the public. I think about the musical ride program with the horses in Ottawa. Those are mm -hmm. big public events and, and, and those are a huge opportunity for the force to connect with the population of the city. So this one is one of those examples where the purpose makes sense but the appetite may be a little bit fraught. Maybe so. And this is part, I suspect, of why the Heritage Department was demanding such thorough consultations or pretty significant expansions of the ones that had taken place. Um, and the vision for the center is actually interesting. It kind of touches on that. It reminded me of one of our old news panel conversations where we had, uh, she's on the record with Stephanie saying that, you know, we want this not only to be a tribute to the RCMP and it's a historic role in Canada, but we want this to be a space for more difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. sort of what the end game is for that center, at least on, you know, at this point. So, yeah, I think that that's, they're very much aware of the potential obstacles and the, the, the politically sensitive aspects they have to navigate if they're going to get this project off the ground. Michelle, let's switch gears once again. Now, of course, the conversations around travel and travel anxiety remain in the headlines, even from last summer's trouble at the airports to the holiday trouble at airports and rail sectors across the country. Over the weekend, your colleagues at CP ran a feature about travel anxiety and what people are doing to mitigate the possibility of a travel nightmare. Michelle, this does relate to our daily poll. So before I ask you the Ooh, daily poll, right. I do want to ask you some of the techniques that were brought up or, or suggested or considered in this feature okay yeah so it's worth a read actually my colleague Cassandra Sklarski did quite a nice job with this one and some of the strategies that they're advising are things like taking sometimes shorter trips road trips trips that can allow you to stay closer to home so you can potentially avoid the airport situation altogether <laughs> uh can't say that that sounds like a bad idea at this point <laughs> um, close enough that but, you can walk back home in case you run yeah, into trouble seriously but if you, if you do have your heart set on going further afield other tips are, are fairly common sense travel practice even from before but they've taken on some extra resonance now i'd say and we're talking about things like uh, having uh, copies of your prescriptions in case your medication gets lost, maybe some extra medication, uh, maybe some more robust carry-on uh, <laughs> preparation overall, uh, carrying some cash on you in case you're not in a position to use credit cards or debit cards. Uh, th those kinds of fairly basic preparations that I think uh, people have would you like to get people in or, or should I wait? 
Uh, sorry, Michelle. We had a little. Uh, we had a little technical. A little technical That's snafu okay. there that, that interrupted you. But but I think I think what you raised there was a lot of a lot of, a lot of the fundamental stuff that we did happen to see in that uh, in that in that article. So Michelle, the daily poll question, which folks can find at Accessible yeah. Media on Twitter or at Accessible Media Inc on Facebook. What do you do to make your life easier when you travel? So there are a couple options here, but of course you're welcome to go off the board. There's book direct flights only carry on bags, arrive early, or I don't travel, which may actually seem like the easiest solution these days. Um, I have to say that's been more my reality in the past few years. I have not gone anywhere since COVID happened, and, and I'm uh, it's, it's been a while, and I'm starting to get some itchy feet, so mm -hmm. it's time to, to mm -hmm. do something. Um, but I, I, to be honest, I, I, I hate, I hate in non-direct flights, hate them. So probably A would be the one I would pick. Um, arriving early, I feel, is kind of a given for that. But yes, I, I, do yes. try to, <laughs> I do try to limit uh, the, the number of stops and starts I have in any kind of trip I take. Um, I'm also not really averse to train travel, even for long distances and even in light of, of some of the recent chaos with Via Rail. I, mm. I do find that for for trips that can be managed by train, it can often be a really comfortable and, and easy way to go. So those would be my... Uh, not exactly pro tips. Yeah, a, uh, it, it's a much more relaxing way to go, but there does become a calculus you're eventually going to do, which is it takes a day and a half to get to Winnipeg versus uh, versus a couple hours on a plane. So, hey, you so. know what? I, I, my, when when much younger, we did a, a cross country trip from Toronto to Vancouver on Via Rail. I've done that great. too. I've done that it's too. Awesome. Uh, but I think that might have been a young man's game because I don't know if I could sleep in a chair anymore. Uh, no, that's why you get the bunk car and sleep on bunks. It's fantastic. No, seriously, I, I, I was shockingly comfortable. Okay, well, I'm gonna, <laughs> one of the best I'm, sleeps of my life is when uh, we woke, went to bed in Ontario and woke up in Saskatchewan. They they will throw me <laughs> off the train because of my snoring. Uh, the, that is, there's no doubt about it. Hey, Michelle, great to chat with you live on the air again. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you on Friday for the news panel. Yeah, it's good. Thanks so much, Dave. That's Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, Denny Boudreau checks in, and we'll talk about clunky but functional mobile websites and talk about a term that I've coined called clunctional. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index turned things around to end the week, gaining 1.6% Friday after positive jobs data reset a less-than-stellar start to the trading year. Toronto's TSX index added 307 points to close at 19,814. New York's Dow Jones average gained 700 points, or 2.1%, and the Nasdaq rose 2.5%. Japanese markets are closed today for a holiday. Our dollar is trading overseas this morning a little higher at 74.68 cents U.S. As Prime Minister Justin Trudeau prepares to fly from Ottawa to Mexico City this morning, experts are urging him and fellow North American leaders to take a continental approach to this week's so-called Three Amigos Summit. Trudeau, U.S. President Joe Biden, and Mexico's Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador will meet tomorrow in Mexico City. Trudeau will also take part later today at the North American CEO Summit. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Right from the start, I begged your patience today as we're still working through a couple of hamster wheels here on the new technology, endeavoring to connect with Denis Boudreau of Inclusive Communication, but it looks like we may lose Denis today. It does not matter, however, because there's lots of technology for us to talk about, and virtual reality will be a big technology focus this year. Mike Dabuski looks ahead in Tech Trends. Um, ABC News Tech Trends. Last year was relatively light on virtual reality headset announcements, but 2023 is shaping up to be a big year for VR. Details after this. Ian Hamilton is the managing editor of Upload VR. He says Apple and Sony were expected to reveal high-end VR headsets last year. Both got pushed out of 2022. So that's a lot of like pent up advancement in overall understanding of how good a VR experience it can actually be. Meta, meanwhile, is expected to show off a follow-up to its popular Quest 2. It's already moved about 15 million of those. We could expect that a Quest 3 would reach a much larger market than that if it can come in around $300 or $400. As for Meta's ambitions to have VR take over the working world, Hamilton says we're getting closer. But we're very far from people picking VR headsets over a for those purposes. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. There, there's, of course, lots of tech news going on right now with CES taking place in Las Vegas, what used to be known as the Consumer Electronics Show. I wonder when we decide the acronym of CES is just good enough without saying formally the Consumer Electronics Show, but there's been all kinds of neat stuff. We'll check in with Stephen Scott of Double Tap TV a little bit in the second hour to talk about CES, some of his takeaways, including a new adaptive gaming kit from Sony and some recycled material from Belkin. Lots of other interesting stories coming out of CES. I may share a few of those with you tomorrow, but we may also bring on a guest to talk about a full recap of CES as the week moves along. So lots of tech to talk about, but before we move any further, let's head over to catch up with a couple of news stories. Canada's Defence Minister will provide an update today on the military's plans to replace its ageing fleet of fighter jets. Brenda Molina, Navidad sets the table. Information disclosed last month shed some light on what lies in store for Anita Anand's announcement this morning. The Canadian press previously reported that the Department of National Defence received approval to spend $7 billion on 16 F-35 fighter jets, along with related gear, technology and facilities. The expected move is part of a decade-long effort to buy 88 fighter jets to replace aging CF-18s. Experts have long argued upgrades to the fighter jet fleet and its associated infrastructure are necessary given the state of the Air Force's current equipment and facilities. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press. And looking abroad, Brazilian authorities are picking up the pieces after thousands of ex-President Jair Bolsonaro's supporters stormed Congress, the Supreme Court and the presidential palace yesterday. Charles de Ledesma has the latest. After climbing on the roofs of the three key institutions of state, the protesters bypassed security barricades, rampaging through halls and leaving interiors in ruins. Bolsonaro's followers have refused to accept his election defeat to Lula da Silva, who was inaugurated on January the 1st 
Lula says the storming is unprecedented in the country and has called the demonstrators fascist fanatics. I'm Charles de Ledesma. We have connected with Denis Boudreau in Montreal. Very exciting. You may have heard that there were some travel troubles over the holidays, airport delays and cancellations. You know the standard Canadian air travel experience. However, Via Rail also had significant cancellations in the Windsor and Quebec City corridor. I got caught up in that. It involved me making some very quick changes to travel plans using my phone. The, the Via website on my phone, clunky, but functional. So I've coined this term clunctional. Get it? Clunky, but functional. Which is a stark contrast to my experience with an unnamed major Canadian bank's mobile website. It was quite stylish, but totally unfunctional without changing my accessibility settings. So let's get Denis Boudreau's perspective on this. Denis is the founder of Inclusive Communication. Hey, good morning, Denis. How are you? Good morning. I'm feeling much better now. Thank you. Yeah, excellent. Uh, Denis, I'm not 100% sure that this term clunctional is something that I've coined because it's, you know, so gosh darn original. But as a matter of compromise, what do you make of clunctionality as something to be utilized in the inclusive digital space? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is you should probably think about trademarking that idea because it's actually a good one. Um, I, I certainly see a lot of clunctionality uh, in my work most days. Uh, let's see. What do I what do I think about or, or make of that as something to be utilized in the uh, digital space? Well, I, I, th I think most websites will will have their their fair share of functionality. Really, um, I'm uh, I have to say. I mean, be, being someone who works in that space, I've been working in that space for twenty some years. I still am pretty reluctant most of the time to use a phone to go on a website. Unless I have a choice, uh, unless I have a, no other choice, I mean, mm, I'd mm. much rather use my, my desktop or my laptop most of the time because I know that I'll be running into some frustrations due to the lack of, of energy being uh, dedicated to, you know, optimizing certain experiences on mobile. On mobile. And, um, and I think what you're referring to is one of those things where, you know, the big, the bigger the sites are, uh, the more, you know, the, the bigger the organizations, the more, the more money or, or revenue or resource they have, then the better the experiences tend to be. But usually, their web version on mobile is their least uh, favored uh, approach, or, or the, the area where they spend the less energy on. Mm. They'll have a lot of energy being spent on their their desktop uh, experience, and then they'll likely try to move you to an application if they have one. And the time that they spent on optimizing the experience for the web on a mobile device is probably comes last. I mean, it, it feels that way for, for a lot of different uh, different sites. And I, I like I haven't looked at uh, Via Rail, but I've had to book train tickets a couple of years back, like two years back. And I remember that I wasn't particularly impressed either. Mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. I totally see what you're saying with that. And yeah, I, I think that the uh, it's, it's something that we have to sort of acknowledge and, and live with, unfortunately, especially when we think about the accessibility piece of the whole thing. I mean, the experience itself. I haven't talked about the experience in general, but when you think about how that comes across in terms of inclusion, in terms of accessibility for different users who have different types of disabilities, then of course you add another layer 
of challenges to it. Denis, I, I've got a little conspiracy theory about how maybe that, that mobile app becomes a lower priority because they want you to download an app for your phone, but I don't want to get you or me sued. So how about we move on to maybe a broader <laughs> question here. In my case, rebooking a train on the fly was not to the level of emergency or crisis, but there certainly was some urgency to it, right? There was a storm. I was trying to get home to see my family. It was the holiday season. But when we look at an example like this, how much do some companies take for granted that an accessible, inclusive digital product can actually be a very, very essential service? Well, I, I wish there were more, clearly, that it took that uh, more seriously. I mean, you, you, you and I both know uh, from different experiences that there's always quite a bit of challenge, uh, you know, associated with using uh, online services. Um, so, so when you think about situations where someone is in a crisis or as a state of emergency, for instance, on top of the difficulties that people may be experiencing using the site to begin with, you know, the, the stress level comes up and, and, uh, and all, all the, the anxiety comes up mm. about having to achieve something which, you know, lowers our ability to cognitively, you know, think and, and, and plan and, and process information properly. So, you know, in, in your case, like trying to get to your family, I mean, it is important, but imagine if it was a life or death situation, for instance, and you were really stressed out, your ability to process or think or even notice things that might be on the screen, but are just not that obvious to you at the moment, makes everything even more uh, difficult. Mm. So, so yeah, I mean, there's there's been quite a few books that have been written actually on this topic, and uh, it's it's pretty you know disconcerting to to see that it, it looks as though organizations don't spend a lot of time thinking about how users who come to their services, their products, their applications, their platforms, whatever you call it, when they come to those things, if they come in in, in those situations with a high level of stress how that would affect their experience and you know, try to design according to that, trying to design according to some of these extremes of the human experience, so to speak. I mean, when you come to a website and you, everything is cool and you have your coffee, you're in your, your living room and you're browsing on your phone, everything is super relaxed, everything is easier. But if you're on the road, you're trying to get somewhere, you're lost, you're trying to get to your kids or whatever, you know, your ability to process is, is not as great. And, mm. and thinking about designing in for those situations, I think would make a better experience for everyone, even in situations where everything is great and you're just enjoying yourself. Denis, we've only got about a minute left here, but let's wrap up on a positive note. I'm not sure how much or exactly what you can reveal here, but what's on deck for Denis Boudreau this year? <laughs> uh, well, well, first thing, figure out a way to get in, to get to our, our our segment in time next month. That would be awesome. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think that's I think that's my fault a little bit. I think I didn't give you proper guidance when I emailed you on Friday. So that's all, I'll take some blame on this one too. Yeah, I'll take some blame too. Uh, another thing, I mean, I mean, there, there's there's a there's a significant one for me for sure. Significant significant milestone. I'm launching a book next month. So uh, book on inclusion, uh, inclusive speaking, so inclusion in the, the space of uh, communication in general. So something I've been working on for five years, so I'm pretty excited about that. And then besides that, uh, I've, I've been playing, spending so much time this past month with uh, Chad GPT. I'm sure you've mm -hmm. heard of, you've talked mm -hmm. about that tiny already on the, on the, on the show. So, so I've been spending a lot of time playing with that. 
and on exploring the boundaries of, uh, of accessibility, inclusion, the limits that that, you know, that kind of chatbot can have and how it can be uh, leveraged by people with disabilities to uh, have a better experience than maybe using search engines like Google and other search engines to find some of the answers that they're looking for. So pretty excited about that. Uh, so AI will keep being a uh, like an interesting topic for me this year for sure. I mean, I think it's only gonna get bigger and bigger. So. I expect to be spending a lot more time on that than I had in the past. Well, Denny, it sounds like we have our next two segments planned. We talk about your book next month, and we talk <laughs> about ChatGPT the next one. Denny, all the best to you and the family. Happy New Year, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. That's Denis Boudreau, the founder of Inclusive Communication and future author. Coming up next, there's a new rom-com out on Amazon Prime called About Fate, starring Emma Roberts. Amy Amanti will review that one. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There is a new romantic comedy available for you on Amazon Prime. The film is called About Fate and stars Emma Roberts. Amy Manti is here to review the film. Hey, good morning, Amy. How are you? Hey, good morning, Dave. Happy New Year. Amy, there is, thank you very much. Happy New Year to you as well. Amy, there is a wide spectrum in the world of romantic comedies. You can go anywhere from sort of the mean girls or bridesmaids all the way to your uh, traditional Hallmark movie. Where would you say this one lands? Oh, I would say there's definitely a Hallmark type, uh, type vibe to this one, but it's not really mean girls and it's not really bridesmaid. Um, it's much more of an endearing type uh, romantic comedy than it is a slapstick or um, or an absurdity type of comedy. Okay, okay. I, you know, one of the reasons why I asked that question is because the film is rated R, so it implies there could be a little bit of raunchiness somewhere along the way here. I think there's there's a there's a uh, I don't want to call it a nude scene, but there's a partial nude Ooh. scene, and I think that might be why. I know I, one of, one of our lead characters strips down to his underwear. Oh my! Um, but I know I know risque, right? Um, but I think that that's probably the only reason why it's rated R. If I can, you know, if I'm thinking about the content, you know, there might be a few um, curse words in there along the way as well. But there, there isn't really any like when I think about bridesmaids and sort of the um, absurd graphic. Uh, type of comedy that's in that if they don't even compare they're not in the same league okay maybe i've wandered a little bit too far off the path amy this is a remake about fate is a remake what's the background on the original yeah it's a remake of an old uh russian tv series actually um which i thought was really interesting from roughly the 70s and i apologize dave because my computer is not uh, playing fair this morning so i don't have my traditional notes with me that's okay um, that's so, okay we can so, like amy we understand the tech gremlins come for us all <laughs> they do indeed but um uh, you know, I was doing some revision of them last night to prepare, and so this this Russian um, TV series was very, very popular uh, in Russia, and it, and it's uh, roughly the same idea. So the idea is is that uh, these two two people live in kind of the same 
place. So they live in a little bit of a, a modern kind of subdivision where there's like a, a west side and the east side of the subdivision. So they have the same unit number and uh, the same apartment layout. And one of them finds themselves in the other's apartment by accident. Right. And they're so they live such similar lives as strangers that even the key is under the pot like they both have the key under the pot. So this guy comes home one night and he puts the key in the door and, uh, and all of a sudden he's in a bed that's not his. And the girl oh comes my. home and, oh, my gosh. Right. So so it's a remake of that kind of circumstantial. Um, uh, that's why it's about fate. Right. It's fate <laughs> that they find themselves. I, I don't in know. If, I don't know if finding a stranger in your apartment counts as a meet cute, though. I, I think I think that one's a little bit outside outside the typical vein. Well, I suppose that um, uh, in this particular case, both of these folks are rather harmless, which is a good thing. <laughs> uh, but they're both engaged to other people, and um, and the girl is uh, going to her sister's wedding, and her relationship is in a rocky place. Mm-hmm. And he's getting married or is engaged to a supermodel. Oh, my. Not very nice to him. And uh, and the girl says to him, well, you know what? To make it up for me for being in my place, maybe you can come with me as my date to the wedding. And then a whole bunch of antics ensue because he's playing, you know, her fake boyfriend by another name and all sorts of things ensue. But that's the about fate. And uh, and on the way, you know, they kind of realize that they're meant for each other, right? Like that's the yeah. whole premise of the yeah. idea. Two strangers meet. Let, let, let's talk about the actors involved here. Emma Roberts is the female lead. What did you make of her performance? I thought, uh, you know, and to be honest with you, I didn't recognize her. And I, this happens to me a lot now with sort of the, I'm going to put air quotes around this, the younger stars. Um, I, I had the privilege, of course, of my eyesight uh, growing up. So, like, I remember what, you know, uh, Julia Roberts looks like. Um, and so her voice is more of a of an audio, audio memory for me. But the newer ones, I, I, oh, I know that voice, but I can't put a face to the mm, name. And mm. so I didn't recognize that it was her at first. She plays kind of um, uh, a mixture of your, you know, your kind of your your stereotype blonde type character um, to some extent. You know, a little bit aloof in, in that stereotype. But I actually thought that there were some really endearing moments. And what was the interesting thing to me is that originally they had uh, thought about casting, well, they had cast. Mila Kunitz from uh, that 70s show mm. star in this film, but now has gone with, with Emma Roberts. So like a completely different uh, character vibe. Well, do you think the film would have been better if Mila Kunis was in that role? I don't think so. Um, as much as I love Mila Kunitz, she has kind of a, a bit of an, an edge to her, and she doesn't have that same um kind of aloofness i know that sounds funny to say because her character in that 70s show was more than aloof (laughs) aloof plus yeah but but she was like 14 years old it was like a million years ago right the aloofness that's sort of entangled with the girl next door that's entangled with the um sort of that ability to i don't know connect on a love spectrum and it has to, they're just, there's a, there's this different recipe for me. So I think she was well suited and performed well on this particular show. What about the leading men, Thomas Mann, the leading men, get it? Ha ha ha, Dave, you're so funny. <laughs> how, 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 did he, how did he present himself on screen? You know, I hadn't seen Thomas Mann in a lot of stuff previously, so I wasn't really um, that familiar with his acting style. He is a stereotype in and of himself, and you're, we're seeing this a lot on uh, on various TV shows where you've got really the, the 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 gorgeous girl, right? She's gorgeous, 
And then you've got this guy who's either, you know, the Jack Blacks or the short, chubby, kind of awkward guys, or this guy, Thomas Mann, who's the tall, skinny guy who doesn't look like he's ever, you know, run a brush through his hair, you know, <laughs> kind of skinny, awkward, geeky. Um, huh? And they, and they we'll seem like they're two people that are like not, wouldn't be on each other's radars. Uh, but he absolutely is endearing uh, in this film, and um, and I think the two of them together make a nice complement um, because they both sort of have the same kind of person next door uh, vibe, which is which is quite nice. Amy, let's move on to the audio description. What did you think of the audio description? Audio description uh, is obviously really necessary, but I think it missed the mark on a few things, which was. Um, you know, they have the same apartment, essentially, right? Um, just different sides of the lot. So, okay. But as far as the filming, as far as the filming of it is, it's the same, the same apartment. So they would sometimes, I would sometimes not right away know which apartment I was going to be in um, because they look the same, right? And so back at the apartment, well, who's a, who's an apartment are we at, right? So there were some moments in there where I just thought, oh, that could be a little clearer, um, but other than that, you know, it's, it's again, the audio description is super essential because there's a lot of these little romantic moments that are happening in silence, and mm. I want to be a part of those. Mm -hmm. And so for those moments, it's really important, and the, the audio description hit the mark on those. Amy, I, I don't know if it's your, your technical troubles or the film itself. I'm getting the impression maybe you didn't love this one. So if you had to rate it out of 10, what grade would you give it? You know, yeah, you know what I say often is like I don't need to see it again. Mm, <laughs> it just, mm. I, I I absolutely enjoyed it while I watched it. I it, it's fast, it's quick paced. You, you know, you're not sitting there going went went all the time. But it is something we've seen over and over and over again in their typical comedy style. I did give it a seven and a half. So it's not a a, a, a bummer film. Um, it's light, it's nice-hearted, it has a happy ending, and uh, you can't really go wrong when you take those boxes. I, I can't forget, I, I, I can't forget when you recalibrated, but 7.5 used to be your Zombieland 2 double tap grade, so yeah. I always use 7.5 yeah. as kind of a stay away on the Amy Amanti scale, but I think you recalibrated after after um, the, the Tom Hanks uh, Navy movie a couple of years ago, which you gave a 5 on 10, I, and I was I, like, woof, oh boy. Yeah. You got it, Dave. I did do some recalibration, and I think sort of a, a five now is my my sink or swim mark. <laughs> yeah. um, so this one, I mean, this one is a, a, a plenty, plenty interesting and um, enjoyable if you just want something to pass your time. But is it riveting and something we've never seen before and super exciting? No, it's your run of the mill. Uh, rom-com. Uh, hey, we, we can live with that, and there's plenty of people who love that kind of content. Amy, thank Absolutely. you. <laughs> Amy, thank you for this. Always a blast catching up. All the best to you, and we'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. Thanks, Dave. That is Amy Amanti with a review of About Fate, which you can find on Amazon Prime with closed captioning and audio description, and the film is rated R. Remember, if you ever want to give the show feedback, we welcome you to do so. You can do it in all sorts of ways. You can send us emails, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. You can find us on social media at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook and Instagram or at Accessible Media on Twitter and TikTok. Don't forget, if you want to go old school, you can always pick up the phone and give us a ring. 1-866-509-4545. 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, I'll give you the regional news update and Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI.
Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.